All right, we're going to go ahead and get started down here as well. So if you could uh, make your way to your seats. So we'll continue with the, uh, we're going to continue with our study from last week this morning, but before we begin, I would like to start as always with a word of prayer. Are there any uh, prayer requests we can bring to the Lord this morning? Yeah, the hurricane victims. Yeah. This, this situation, situation in Europe, and this it's getting dangerous. Yeah. Definitely some dangerous things happening in Europe, for sure. I agree. All right, well, if there's a uh, no. this weekend, the trip of Navigator. So we're praying that Lord might use that time and to uh, do a, a, a different work than perhaps a setting type. Okay. We'll do as well. One thing I can see that going to look less positive. Short term results. We still have time to answer. That sounds like a praise, so we'll definitely keep that. We'll bring that to the floor this morning as well. 
All right, if there's uh, nothing else, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for coming together this time to uh, study your word, Lord. We're just uh, thankful for the right and the authority we have by the blood of your Son, Jesus, to uh, approach boldly the throne of grace this morning, Lord, and to make our petitions known. And Lord, we just ask that uh, you would answer the needs that are around us. There are many needs that have been brought up this morning. Lord, I just ask that uh, you would remember the victims of the hurricane, Lord, all those that are in the path of this storm that have had uh, devastation, lost homes or property, or even those that have lost loved ones. Lord, we just ask that you would uh, offer comfort and grace in the midst of that. Be with the ones that are going to go and be with the chaplains that are that are responding to that disaster, Lord, in their own communities to try to um, offer the hope of the gospel in the midst of that, Lord. We just ask that you would be with those people as well. Lord, we just also ask you to remember um, Lou Patterson, Lord, as he's dealing with the issue with the brain tumor, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, offer healing in regards to that, Lord, again. And uh, again, most importantly, we pray for his soul that he would uh, turn to you in repentance and faith and trust in you for uh, full healing, Lord, uh, true healing, which can only come through belief in your son. Lord, we just ask also you remember the situation that's developing in Europe, Lord, as there are wars and rumors of wars. We just ask that you would... Uh, Please uh, be with um, our leadership, Lord, that they would have wisdom, discernment, and how to handle this situation. Uh, we'd also just ask that you would uh, be with the people that are in the midst of um, those countries, Lord, the places like Ukraine and uh, places like Latvia and Estonia and those, those areas, um, Finland, these places that are on the very border at the very front of these things, Lord, and also the people of Russia. And, uh, Lord, we just know that... Um, in spite of whatever um, rulers and leaders may do or things of that nature, we, we know that oftentimes it's the small, the little people, they're the ones that ultimately are the ones that pay the price, Lord. We just ask that you would uh, be with those people in the midst of that. We would also ask you to remember uh, Benjamin as he's uh, in Gatlinburg this weekend, Lord. I just pray that that would be edifying for him, that, um, that it'll be uh, profitable. Lord, we just also like to offer praise this morning, Lord, for Greg's friend Sandy, uh, that um, the surgery, in spite of what seemed like um, uh, what seemed like a dire situation, Lord, you've somehow, in the midst of it, brought good out of it, Lord. And um, in the short term, at least, while he still has the cancer, he has regained speech and um, that he did pull through on the surgery. We're just thankful for that this morning. Lord, we're just uh, thankful most of all for the cross, for your son Jesus, knowing that uh, in spite of all the turmoil and upheaval that's taking place in the world today, we recognize that there is a sure foundation upon which we stand, a solid rock that is the anchor point for our souls. That uh, in spite of the things that we see that are going on in the world, Lord, um, we are not like those that have no hope. You know, those that are in despair or in trepidation this morning, Lord, because of the fact that they, in their souls, do not have peace. We know you are the one who is the Prince of Peace, and as such, you have rendered that peace within our hearts, Lord, so that we are able this morning to be reconciled to you and recognize that in spite of all the things that may happen, Lord, no matter what may come, we understand that we recognize that they are according to your sovereign providence, that uh, all things that take place are in your hand, Lord, that the the movements of armies, uh, the machinations of rulers and leaders and powers in this in this world, Lord, they all play into your hand, that though the nations may rage, we know that you laugh for you hold them in derision, and you are the one that is the master of them, and they are subservient to you. And Lord, we're just thankful this morning for the fact that uh, 
you are overseeing all things, Lord. And most of all, we also are grateful for the promise that in spite of what may happen, Lord, we know that all things work together for the good of those that are called according to your purpose. And we can trust in that and bank upon that promise this morning. We thank you for the cross and for your son, Jesus. It is in his precious name we pray. Amen. So as I promised, we would continue with our discussion of the long ending of Mark. Um, to briefly summarize, because I know there's some here who were not with us last week, um, and I don't know, Damon has the uh, recording from last week, has that been uploaded at this point? Or? Okay, good deal, good deal. So I'm like, like I mentioned last week, I'm making sure these are recorded because the stuff I'm covering is, is somewhat heavy content. I recognize that, and I want to make sure that this stuff is there, so that if anybody desires to go back and listen to that and look at that again, I mean, it's there. Um, so, to make a brief summary here, you know, as we stated last week, we're taking a brief, but hopefully a comprehensive look at the ending of Mark's Gospel. Uh, the ending of Mark's Gospel is one of the two largest variant readings in the New Testament. The other being the story of the woman caught in adultery, found at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. As we indicated last week, there are principally five endings that we find of the Gospel of Mark found in the ancient manuscripts that we have today. The first we looked at was the traditional ending that we find, that if you look in your Bibles, you'll find, which is verses 9 through 20. Then if you also, and of course you have the handout there, so if you look at that, you can also see there's an intermediate ending too at the Gospel of Mark, which is much shorter in length. And also, the handout also points out that at the end of verse 8 is what we call the short ending. So that's the ending that basically ends right there at verse 8. There's also a singular manuscript, which includes the material listed there at the end of verse 14. In the long ending, this is what is known as the Freer Logion, or the Freer Saying. It's named after the man who discovered the manuscript that it resides in, Langston Freer. And it's there in the handout for you to look at as well. But as I stated before, it has no legitimate claim of being original to Mark whatsoever. And last, there are a few manuscripts that have the long, short, and intermediate endings all in the same manuscript. And usually those manuscripts have scribal notes on each ending by the scribes that translate it. So last week, we had looked at the evidence for the various endings. Having considered the evidence for the differing endings, the field of possibilities was narrowed down to two possible candidates for being original to the Gospel of Mark. And that will be the long and short endings, respectively. This week, we are going to consider the arguments for each. First, let me lay out the case for the long ending of Mark, and then we will proceed with the short ending of Mark. And again, I'm going to try in this situation, I have my own opinions on this, but I'm going to try to be as objective as I can and lay out the arguments, and you know, I'm going to leave it to you to decide with regards to that. So it must be first said, and I'm just going to be honest here, there are, there are a few credible defenses for the long ending of Mark available out there. However, there are a lot of them that operate on really, I'm going to say, a very similar line of reasoning that we see in a lot of King James-onlyest arguments. And, and what I mean by this is that they usually have this emphasis on what we call the Byzantine line of manuscripts, 
or what's often called the majority text of the Old of the New Testament. And they often have this very thinly veiled demonization of the Alexandrian or the minority text of the New Testament. The majority of Greek manuscripts that we have today belong to what we call the Byzantine line of manuscripts. And they are known as the Byzantine manuscripts because most of the texts originated out of the Byzantine Empire in the area of what is today modern-day Greece and Turkey. Alongside the Western line of manuscripts, they are the overwhelming majority text available to us. That means that's the most number of texts we have come out of this line. While these are the most numerous readings of the New Testament that we have today, most of them are significantly later works. Usually they date to the 8th century into the medieval period. In contrast, the Alexandrian line of manuscripts comprise a much smaller number of manuscripts. They are known as the Alexandrian line because they primarily come out of Alexandria in Egypt. However, these manuscripts are significantly older, dating back primarily to the 3rd and 4th centuries. An important thing that needs to be understood is that the earliest copies of the New Testament from the time of the Apostles into the 4th century were written on papyrus. Papyrus was manufactured from the leaves of water plants in the Nile Delta. In the early days of the church, papyrus was the most common material used for writing down copies of the New Testament. All of the oldest copies of the New Testament were certainly written on it. The issue with papyrus is its longevity. Papyrus becomes very brittle with time and deteriorates rapidly, particularly in humid climates. Over time, the church began to move away from papyri manuscripts and began to copy the New Testament onto parchment, or vellum, which is instead made from tied and tides of animals. Parchment is much more durable than papyrus and can last under heavy use as well as it lasts a long time even in humid areas. And of course you might ask, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I'm going to try to explain that. Um, the significance of this is to explain why the oldest manuscripts we have come from Egypt. And the reason that's important is because there is this myth that goes around, and you've probably heard it, you may have heard it at some point, if you have looked into these issues at all, that exists that, particularly you see this in King James only as circles, that Alexandria, Egypt was this awful place full of wicked scribes who, that took whatever they didn't like out of the Bible, and these are the copies that we have today because of the... I guess to say, loose and cavalier attitude of these scribes, we have things that are removed or taken out of the Bible. A similar idea is held by some proponents of the long ending of Mark, who say that the long ending was removed by the Alexandrian scribes because they objected specifically to the doctrines given in verses 17 and 18. As to why they removed everything else after verse 8 instead of just removing those verses is usually not explained. <coughs> So the short answer is that this claim about the Alexandrian scribes is, I'm going to say it simply, bogus. The fact that the Alexandrian scribes are so often maligned is a tragedy. The scribes that transcribed these copies were, by all the evidence that we have, faithful men seeking to accurately copy down the word of God. The Alexandrian scribes, we know, did not remove texts that they disagree with. If a text was something that they thought was questionable, they typically would put an asterisk next to it. They wouldn't remove it entirely. 
And it is true that these oldest manuscripts come from Egypt, and there's absolutely nothing nefarious about that. The simple reason for this is climate. Papyrus is brittle, and in humid climates, like most of the Mediterranean and the Roman world, papyrus would not last very long. It would not last centuries. However, in Egypt, the incredibly dry climate had led to these oldest manuscripts surviving long enough for us to find them, for us to discover them. And again, I think it's important for us to cover this and to get it out of the way because a lot of arguments for the long ending stake their argument on this idea that Alexandria was this place where false Bibles were being turned out, and that's simply not true. The reason that the oldest manuscripts come from Egypt has everything to do with climate. It has nothing to do with any sort of idea of scribes removing things or messing with the text or anything like that. With that being said, there are some solid reasons for support of the long ending. The primary reason to support it would simply be the breadth of textual evidence for it. As we've stated before, somewhere in the ballpark of 99% of existing Greek New Testaments have the long ending of Mark. There are 1,653 Greek New manuscripts that include the long ending of Mark. On the other hand, the number of existing manuscripts of Mark today that end at verse 8 is only three in number. And those texts are Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and a document called Manuscript 304. James Snap Jr. makes a very credible, I think a very credible argument, that these documents do actually demonstrate familiarity with the long ending of Mark. One of the key arguments in the case of the short ending is the idea that these documents show ignorance of anything after verse 8. In the case of Vaticanus, the scribe that copied Vaticanus wrote the manuscript with three columns on each page. Without exception, every column of every page is used with only a few examples, or only a few exceptions. Now one thing that's also important to note is that papyrus was expensive, and no respectable scribe would waste it with large open spaces in a document. One of those exceptions is the blank third column on the page where the Gospel of Mark ends. James Snap argues that using the same spacing as the scribe that wrote the document, the blank space perfectly fits the text of Mark verses 9 through 20. Snap's argument is that the space represents a holding space for additional material. Now looking at Sinaiticus, there is also a distinct change in the way the scribe writes down the last chapter, which is unique. I'm going to let Snap actually kind of describe that here for us, so I'm going to read from him. In Sinaiticus, four replacement pages contain Mark 14, 54 through 16, 8, and Luke 1, 1 through 56, which are not written by the scribes of the surrounding pages. It was probably made by the manuscript supervisor or proofreader. Although initially this copyist wrote at a rate of 635 letters per column, in Luke, he drastically compressed his lettering at a rate of 690 letters per column. But near the end of Mark, he did the opposite. He expanded his lettering in the first column of the third page. Without taking this step, after accidentally omitting most of Mark 16.1, the writer would have reached the end of verse 8. In this column, leaving the next column blank. But not wanting to do so, he not only expanded his lettering, 
but also made the decorative design after 68 uniquely emphatic. So, in short, what Stapp is saying is that the scribe in Sinaiticus began expanding the letter spacing out to ensure that he wouldn't leave an open space in the document. Instead, that he would finish the document at the right place. And this was done indicating an awareness on his part that there was other material that existed beyond verse 8. In um, manuscript 304, which is the last one, Snap also makes several important points about this one as well. First, 304 is a later 12th century document. As we mentioned last week, it contains Matthew and Mark alongside some commentary material. The commentary includes contributions from a number of ancient commentators, including Eusebius. However, the primary source of the commentary seems to be from one Theophylact of Alred, who was a Greek who wrote extensive commentary on the Gospels. This is important as Theophylact's commentary does include commentary material on verses 9 through 20. And again, this points to a likelihood of familiarity with the material that we see in verses 9 through 20. It's also important to understand that 304 is what we call a Byzantine document, which what that means essentially is that that document comes from a same line of documents that would have normally had verses 9 through 20. Besides this, we do know that the long ending is old. It predates the oldest Alexandrian text that we have today. We know that it's quoted, or quoted, I should say, by numerous people. We have Irenaeus of Lyon, who mentions it in the 2nd century. Justin Martyr, another early Christian father, alluded to Mark 16.20 in his first apology. We also know that Tatian's work, called the Diatessaron, has it as well. The Diatessaron is a very important work in the history of the early church. It represents the earliest harmony of the Gospels that we have. And this work also includes verses 9 through 20. So all of these works, it's important to understand, include this information, and we know it includes it in the 2nd century before the documents that omit it. There is a greater attestation to the long ending in the 3rd and 4th centuries. It is quoted by Vincentius of Tiberius, Hippolytus, Ambrose, Palladius, and Augustine, as well as other church fathers. A pagan writer, Heracles, uses verse 18 in an attack against Christians, arguing essentially what his argument was, that Christians should put their money where their mouth is and drink poison like their scriptures say that they should. In addition, Origen might possibly allude to the long ending, in his works. In the 5th century, it is cited by Macarius Magnus, Pelagius, Philostorgius, Marius Mercator, Nestorius, Leo the Great, and St. Patrick. It is also included in a Syriac work, the Syriac Gospels, Jerome's original Vulgate Bible. We also have another citation found in the Gothic Codex Argentius, which is often referred to as the Silver Bible. Despite the issues with the long ending, there are some internal textual arguments to be made for the coherence of the rest of Mark. William Farmer argues for the originality of the long ending by way of an assertion that the long ending represents a rougher, more difficult reading for the text of Mark. One principle of textual criticism is that over time, 
scribes tend to refine rougher and more difficult readings in favor of smoother, more easier readings. So Farmer's argument is that the long ending, with its peculiarities such as handling snakes and drinking poison, represents a rough reading which was refined into an intermediate and a short ending. Another argument for the long ending is based on the structure of Mark. Mark, if we recall, if we've looked at the gospel, we know that Mark likes to sandwich things. If you, if you understand what I mean, he'll take a story, he'll begin a story, and then he'll have a break, and in the middle of that story, he'll start another story, and then he'll take that story up again. So he'll sandwich these different stories together, putting a story within a story. And so the argument here is that Mark, throughout his gospel, is using this idea, and so the argument then for the long ending is to say that that ending represents a sandwich to the very beginning of the gospel of Mark, which we see in Mark 1, this idea of the Son of God being sandwiched together. So you have the Son of God motif in the first chapter, and then you have in the last chapter, and it all sort of acts as a giant sandwich, if you will, to the gospel of Mark. A prospective champion by William Farmer and David Plack also asserted that Mark actually created originally a private version of Mark, represented by the short ending, and a public version, represented by the long ending. This is partly based on the testimony of Eusebius, who states on the Gospel of Mark, The Gospel according to Mark had this occasion. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome, he declared the Gospel by the Spirit. Many who were present requested that Mark who had followed him for a long time and remembered his sayings, should write them out. And having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. Since Mark was originally written as a private memoir of the discourses of Peter, Mark's initial drafts, if you will, were rough drafts. The long ending represents material he added when the gospel was formally published and disseminated throughout the church. Another argument by James Snap argues that the long ending represents notes that Mark made for his ending, but that he was unable, for some reason, to finish. This argument would then state that associates of Mark, using his notes, finished the gospel and added these as notes at verses 9 through 20. This argument relies on argument for canonicity in spite of the long ending not being written by Mark. In other words, that the long ending of Mark still is canonical, even though it was not actually written by Mark. And the reason for this would be examples such as Deuteronomy being finished by Joshua. Also, another example would be Samuel being finished by Nathan and Gad. For me, the most convincing argument for the long ending of Mark being original, is really on the basis of grammar. Verse 8 does not represent a good grammatical ending from the perspective of Greek grammar. What do I mean by that? So in the original Greek text, the reading of, for they were afraid, actually for comes at the very end of the sentence, the word for, the Greek word gar. You never end a Greek sentence or you never end a document with the word gar. It just does not happen. We don't see it ever happen anywhere else in any of the manuscripts that we have today. So it's been noted that since Greek grammar would never end a sentence with this word, 
as it does in verse 8, it could not possibly be the original ending or where Mark intended for his document to stop. And for me, that is, in my mind, the most convincing argument that you can make for saying that verses 9 through 20 should, in fact, be understood as the actual ending of Mark's gospel. So now that we've laid out a case for the long ending, I'm also going to take a look at the arguments for the short ending of Mark, and I'm also going to make the full disclosure that you know, this is my favored view, in my own opinion. And I'm just going to say that that's my opinion, that really verse 8 is the ending of Mark. One of the things that often gets brought up by proponents of the long ending is the numbers. As we have mentioned, numerically there are vastly more existing manuscripts that have the long ending than do not. There are also, as we have stated, numerous references to the long ending in the early centuries of the church. However, the issue in this case, generally speaking, is more an issue of quality rather than quantity. It is not enough to simply say that more manuscripts have the long ending. That is indisputable. However, it is important to understand the overwhelming majority of manuscripts we have that contain it are very late. The premier family that we have, known as the Byzantine text, is typically dated between the 8th and 13th centuries. That means that most documents that we have that have this reading are separated by a thousand years from the original writing. This does not mean that their testimony is irrelevant, but it does mean that we ought to give less weight to them than we do to those that are significantly older and closer to the source material. It was attributed that Dr. Bruce Metzger stated succinctly that manuscripts ought to be weighted, not counted. In short, it is not a simple head count we are looking for to determine the truth in this matter. We have to weigh and evaluate the evidence that we have. One thing that is important to remember with the long ending, which we have stated, is that the long ending is old. It was certainly quoted by Irenaeus in the 2nd century, is included in the Diatessaron, and may have been referenced by Justin Martyr. However, the textual evidence for the long ending in the earliest manuscripts that we have are very narrow and go back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries. We know that the two Greek manuscripts that are oldest in the New Testament lack it. It is not included in Vaticanus or Sinaiticus. As I mentioned previously, Dr. Snap gives an argument for saying the scribes of these sections were aware of the long ending due to the textual evidence of spacing in the text. And I'm going to agree with him on that, but there is evidence, despite the fact there's evidence of awareness, I don't think that actually is a convincing argument in this situation. The reason for this is that both these documents were 3rd century documents, and the long ending was absolutely in circulation and known at that time. That means the scribes were aware of it, but they chose not to put it into the text. And I think that's important for us to remember. In, in addition, we have a Latin, a Latin copy of the New Testament, which has Mark with the intermediate ending. The intermediate ending was also among, was almost certainly a scribal insertion. It was inserted into the document after verse 8. We also know there were other Greek documents with this ending as well. Even though we have none surviving today, due to the testimony of, of Jerome, we also have several Syriac, Sahidic, Boharic, and Ethiopic documents that also end with the intermediate ending. 
We have multiple Syriac and Armenian documents that omit the long ending. And we have the two oldest surviving Georgian manuscripts from the 9th and 10th centuries that also omit it. These witnesses give a much wider basis for the absence of the long ending and testify that this was not merely a local phenomenon in Egypt where Vaticanus and Sinaiticus were copied. We could also point to a number of Greek unsealed texts, which include the long and intermediate endings after verse 8. Most of these texts have scribal notes indicating that the text was not in all available manuscripts. We also see in this time period a number of Greek unseals that include the long ending, but have the text obelized, or we might say asterisked, thus indicating the text was considered suspect by the scribes. We also have to note the lack of attestation in the early centuries as well. Both Clement of Alexandria and Origen give no indication that they had knowledge of the long ending of Mark. Now this is an argument from silence, and it can't be taken as definitive. Snap argues that Clement and Origen simply didn't use Mark that often, and points to a lack of coverage of Mark generally as the source of the silence. A more substantial witness in regards to the testimony is Eusebius and Jerome. Both men indicated that the majority of Greek texts available to them did not have the long ending of Mark. While only two witnesses, the weight of these witnesses cannot be ignored. Both of these men were highly qualified to make this assessment. For one, Jerome was one who was one of the few church fathers who knew both Greek and Hebrew and was well versed in both languages. Eusebius wrote a comprehensive commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Jerome was the man principally responsible for the translation of the Latin Vulgate Bible. Both of them had wide access to New Testament manuscripts in their day. On top of, it, on top of this, both testimonies are early, dating to the 4th century, and both men indicate that most of the documents in their day did not have the long ending of Mark that most of the documents that they had available to them ended at verse 8. So I think that's an important thing for us to consider as well. Now when we get to the 4th and 5th centuries, we do begin to see a wider proliferation of the long ending. And we see more and more references to the long ending later on. However, early in the manuscript history, the textual evidence for the long ending is narrow. The larger absence in the early period of the church should lead us to consider that it's likely this text was not original. We can also look to the internal evidence as well. The long ending makes a very abrupt ending from verse 8. The subject of verse 8 is the women, and the subject in verse 9 is Christ. We are reintroduced to Mary Magdalene in verse 10 as if she's a new character, and we weren't introduced to her earlier in chapter 16. The other Mary and Salome are not mentioned again. Stylistically, there is a departure from the style of the rest of Mark. Mark's favorite words, which if you ever read Mark, you've kind of learned them, immediately and again, over and over again. If you're going through the Gospel of Mark, you'll hear Mark say, immediately, 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 almost over and over again. You get none of that in the long ending of Mark. So stylistically, there's a change. There's also 14 word choices made in the long ending that are completely absent in the rest of Mark's gospel. The long ending of Mark seems in its content 
to be a compilation of stories told in other Gospels. We have Mary Magdalene relaying the news to the others. This is found in John 20. We also have a very brief reference to the two men on the road to Emmaus, found in Luke 24. And then we have Jesus appearing to the eleven disciples, omitting Thomas, thus referencing John 20. And there is also a similar discourse Jesus gives here to the Great Commission, found in Matthew 23. In addition to these things, we have to consider that there are some seriously strange, and I would say concerning doctrines that come out of the long ending and that are found nowhere else corroborated in the text of Scripture. I think uh, Josh Bice actually gave a very good breakdown of that. He basically outlines four troubling doctrines that we get from the long ending. Baptismal regeneration, handling deadly snakes, drinking poison, and healing by laying on of hands. So verse 16 does seem to con convey the idea of baptismal regeneration. Now, I don't think it personally does, although it is unclear enough that it could be construed that way. So basically what the text says is, positively it says that the one who believes and is baptized is saved, but it refers negatively to unbelief as that which causes someone to be condemned. In other words, it doesn't say you're damned if you're not baptized. It does, it does say belief and baptism together for being saved. Again, it's a little unclear. It's a little iffy. But I, I don't think the original author intended to convey baptismal regeneration. However, it does seem like it can be construed that way. Handling deadly snakes in this passage is likely a reference to Acts 28, which is when Paul was bitten by a snake on the Isle of Malta. That, of course, was an accident. He definitely didn't intend to be bitten by a snake, but he wasn't harmed by the snake. But... What we see here is the way it's framed in the long ending, it almost says like we are commanded as Christians to go out and pick up, pick up deadly snakes and carry them around as part of signs of our faith. And of course, there are those who quite literally do that. In fact, you know, not too far away, you can drive an hour, hour and a half, and you can find a church that's probably going to pull out snakes on a Sunday morning. That's not necessarily an unusual thing to find. Um, some people actually take that verse very, very literally. Um, and unfortunately, people have been hurt because of that. I can actually, I've actually known some people who have been hurt by that kind of idea. People have been bitten, and people have died as a result of that sort of practice. Now, one of the things that they don't do, and this is something that I've always found very interesting, because they take that handling deadly snakes thing very seriously. Nobody drinks poison. That's one I've always found very interesting. Nobody's out here drinking poison, you know, trying to uh, demonstrate their faith. Um, and that's one, when it comes to the drinking poison thing, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, as far as in the, in the text here, we have it. It's strange. It's something, again, we don't see it corroborated anywhere else in Scripture. You just don't see it. I mean, I, if somebody, maybe there's somebody else that has a better biblical example I can think of that might indicate the source of that, but I can't think of anything that corroborates that. And then we have the idea of healing by laying on of hands. Now, James does tell us that we are, if someone is sick, we are called to bring them before the church, anoint them with oil, and pray for healing. But in no way does it indicate a normative practice in the New Testament of laying on of hands, of basically healing people by touching them. Again, these are all documents that seem rather unique to this passage. And so, as a result, I think it's important for us to take those in and factor them in. 
Um, does that mean that the long ending is something we throw out completely? I don't think it is. But that being said, I do have to, for anyone who wants to adopt that, I think there is a point where we have to say, you need to be cautious, and if there is a doctrine there that is not corroborated anywhere else, I mean, if you have something that is here that you can't find backed up anywhere else in Scripture, we need to be careful with that. And that's a good practice, really, in general. We understand that the doctrines of the Holy Scripture, um, we don't need to be building doctrinal castles on things that are very isolated texts. Like, for example, when Paul talks about baptism for the dead. That's a strange and obscure passage. Um, what Paul was talking about, we don't really know. And yet there are people who have built doctrinal castles on saying that there's actual baptism for the dead. There's cults that believe that they have to go in and be baptized for the dead, on behalf of the dead, because of this verse. And so, as a result, again, be very careful. Don't build doctrinal castles on things that are isolated, strange texts. Let clearer texts and more explicit texts help you to understand and to shed light on what strange and obscure passages are teaching. And that principle is as true here as it is anywhere else. <clears throat> now, in making some final comments on this here, I know there are some questions that we have to ask in that situation. If the long ending is not original, and it did end at verse 8, what does that mean? How do we actually explain that? There are a few explanations that account for this. I'm going to provide three potential explanations, two of which I think are unacceptable, and one I prefer as the explanation for the account. The first is that the original ending was lost. One possibility is that the original ending that Mark wrote is simply lost to history. Often those who espouse this notion point to the fact that the ending at Mark 16.8 is in fact very abrupt, grammatically incorrect, seems to be a hanging just out there in nothingness. And I would say that many who take this position often have a very low view of Scripture, usually buying into very critical views of Scripture. I would say that I disagree with this interpretation, particularly because I believe firmly that God inspired, He breathed out the Gospel of Mark, that this is actually the Word of God, and I do not believe that He would allow any of His Word, of His Scripture, to be lost. The second possibility is that Mark was just not able to finish it. There are some who believe that Mark was unable to finish his gospel for whatever reason. Perhaps persecution broke out. Or maybe Mark passed away before he could finish it. Some think he meant to write more. And some have even argued that he may have intended to write a sequel. Perhaps a book similar to the book of Acts written by Luke. And he just wasn't able to get to that. Again, I think the same problems go along with that. Mark was an inspired gospel writer. Mark was a writer who God had chosen, God had selected for the purpose of providing us His Holy Scripture. And as such, I do not think He was prevented from providing us a perfect, complete revelation of the Word of God. And so what I would say, my favorite interpretation of this is the third one, which is that Mark intended to end his gospel at verse 8. I personally favor the idea that Mark intended this because I believe that fundamentally the idea that Mark was trying to convey is that of an empty tomb. What is the final thought we're left with when we get to the ending of verse 8? Of course, the final thought we have is we see the three women running away, 
for they were afraid. But I think what Mark wanted to really leave us out on is the promise that is made there. See the place where they laid him. He is not here. The tomb is empty. Does that mean that all the promises that Jesus said are unfilled? No, that does not mean all the promises that he said are unfilled. He, in fact, made it very clear and expressed throughout the, the entire entirety of the Gospel of Mark that these are the things that must happen, that he will be resurrected again. And so the idea that Mark was trying to convey here in this finality of all things, in the culmination, is, of course, in some ways a cliffhanger, you might say, but an important one. It throws the emphasis upon those who read it who have to really then to consider this monumental fact. The tomb is empty. When they came, the angel said to them, Look, see, this is the place where they laid him. He's not here. And that was the fundamental final thought that Mark was trying to convey to his audience. And I firmly believe and I'm firmly convinced that that's where he wanted to leave it, with the empty tomb. And of course, I think in secondary notion to that, I do believe Mark was a very, very early work. And I think a lot of times when this was carried around early on, because we know in the early days of the church, this, this uh, gospel would have been carried from church to church and read aloud. And I think that it's important for us to remember that probably some of the people who carried that gospel in the beginning were, in fact, people who had seen the resurrected Christ. And so, as a result, when Mark ends at verse 8, those people, when they got to that point, could then launch into, from that point, an actual eyewitness testimony of what they had seen and what they had experienced and what they had encountered of the risen Christ. And they could further provide the background information that the people who heard them needed to that final thought. See, this is where they laid him. He is not here. So I think that's where we sort of have to leave it with regards to this issue. I appreciate you uh, suffering through me, through, me, through me with this. I know this is not what I typically go through and not something that I typically try to do, nor do I think, nor do I intend to do this again, probably for, unless for whatever reason something happens where I have to, because I certainly don't really enjoy these sort of things any more than you probably enjoy listening to it. Nevertheless, again, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, are there um, any uh, questions that we have with regards to the topic we've covered this morning or anything uh, else related to that? I, do, I, I agree, and, and I, 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 I think, you know, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, those of us who do have sort of a literary background, we kind of see what Mark's doing, I think, and to some degree. It's, 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 he's, he has these two contrasting ideas, the idea of the empty tomb, but there's a mystery, there's a tension there of the, of the women leaving in fear, and so you have that idea, and Mark was deliberately doing that to get a response from the audience. Um, that's why he was doing that. Um, and I think it also, it's understandable why people wrote 
some kind of shorter, some kind of short synopsis there, because for a lot of people that's just not satisfying. You know, when you get to that point, you know, it's just not satisfying. You got, you know, th there's got to be more, right? There's got to be something else, and so you get to these other possible endings. So, I agree with that. So you know. I agree. No, I, I think, um, again, I, I tend to favor the idea that Mark, specifically in the Gospel of Mark, um, I do think Mark probably finished before he before Matthew and Luke finished their Gospels. I, I do think Mark probably got his, I guess, to the presses first. Um, and I do think probably it was in the hands of eyewitnesses. Um, and so as a result, a lot of times these eyewitnesses could actually um, relay at the end of the Gospel of Mark their account of the risen Christ, and they could actually fill in those gaps that Mark had left. And I think that almost you could say that the reason it ends at Gar is because verbally it was never going to end at Gar. It was going to immediately launch into a testimony of someone who had actually seen Christ. You know, one of these men, the 500 who had seen him, or any of these these early witnesses that Paul testifies of and others tell us about who had seen Christ, who had witnessed him. Yeah. Agreed. He's referring to the Septuagint copy of the um, the, New, the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation that the people who actually the gospel writers used, and the people who wrote the New Testament. Um, I think, in short, the answer is it's not a good argument. I mean, the Alexandrian the idea that the Alexandrian text was uh, just this result of corrupt scribes or people who didn't who wanted to remove that it's just not consistent. Um, it makes no sense. Um, you know, the King James only people are usually the ones who use that argument. And again, you can't take King James onlyism in any meaningful way outside of Christian circles and have any relevance. I mean, you just can't. Um, I mean, and I know that's probably a bit of a bold statement in some ways, but, you know, I mean, you're not going to be able to get anywhere with a Muslim with that argument. You're not going to be able to get anywhere with an atheist with that argument. They're, they're not going to buy into this um, because it's not consistent. It doesn't hold weight under scrutiny, under evidence. So, you know, again, it's just a bad argumentation.
thank you for taking the time and giving us uh, all the information. It's appreciated. Well, I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, it's um. Again, you know, I know this is um, this is one of those things where it's not the most exciting thing, and I, I do get that. And um, you know, I, I try to relay it in the best way I can. Um, you know, I do try to emphasize on the the thought. It, it is important. I, I think it does matter. And as I share with you my heart last week, my most important thing in in coming across these things is the place where I ran across this first. And I, I those of you who were last week, you know that. One of the biggest crises of faith I ever had early on when I was a Christian, going into the college environment and going in and experiencing those things, was when I found out about this information that I'm telling you about here, having not been prepared by my church or by anybody, having not been told this information, and then faced with the reality, what do I do with this? Because the idea of what I thought the Bible was, how the Bible had gotten to us, was completely shattered. And, you know, I got through that and I was able to come out on the other side. But, you know, I recognize I think that's something that can shipwreck a young person's faith under the right conditions. I think it's something that can can easily destroy uh, the faith of, of a young person when they experience this. And I recognize the sovereignty of God. You know, I'm convinced of the sovereignty of God and all these things. But that being said, the sovereignty of God does not preclude the fact that it alleviates us from the responsibility to prepare our young people for these things because they need to know these things. It's not just this. There's other things, and there's probably tons of other things that we could cover that are also equally as relevant to this topic um, that that do matter and and do affect um, and, and that do affect um, our young people. And you know, if they go out into the college world, they're probably going to hear these things. You know, if, if they're dealing with trying to evangelize college students, they're going to get Bart Ehrman's work thrown in their face. They're going to get some of these critical individuals thrown in their face, and they're going to have to deal with that. And they have to have an answer for those things. And I think that's the most critical part of this. And I know these topics aren't always the most fun thing to cover, but I think if we at least think about that, we can kind of see the necessity of it. Of what's really important and what's really at stake with these issues.